it's time for us to uh, uh, finish our series in Philippians. And Rhiannon, I think, is going to read for us from uh, Philippians chapter 4. Um, I'm going to read from Philippians 4, um, verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Excuse my pronunciations. I plead with Eurydia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, reflect on your holy word this morning, we thank you. It's so readily accessible to us. We thank you that we can spend time listening to the voice of your spirit speaking through the scriptures this morning. And uh, we open our hearts and our minds to you. Give us that same mind in the Lord, the mind of Jesus Christ this morning, that we may experience your peace guarding our hearts and minds as we bring ourselves wholly to you this morning. Lord, speak to us, open our hearts and minds, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord, our Rock, our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So uh, let's jump straight in as we wrap up this short series on the book of Philippians, the letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, if you've been with us for the last three weeks uh, or had a read through Philippians, you might remember the, the love and affection in Paul's words as he writes from prison to his friends in Philippi. Uh, the words at the beginning of the letter, like, I have you in my heart. I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus. Uh, I thank my God every time I remember you. That... Uh, that same affection is repeated here in what we've just read in, in the final chapter, his letter from prison, where he says to his friends, my brothers and sisters whom I long for, my joy and crown. That's how he speaks of his, this church. Um, I titled this, this short sermon series, Partners in Joy, because I think what this letter shows us is that the joy of the Lord that Paul exudes all the way through this letter it's not something he experiences in isolation, like this, this great little arrangement that he has between him and Jesus. It's, it's in the Philippians and Paul's partnership in the gospel is the term in chapter 1. It's in their, their community in faith and the mission of God together that joy is found. Partnership in joy, not joy on its own, just me and Jesus. But ironically, that very partnership, that very community and, and, and bond of love that brings about this, this joy in the Lord, those same relationships can be the cause of 
unjoy. Those same relationships can be the cause of anxiety and tension and disappointment uh, and frustration. And if you've read any of Paul's letters, you'll notice that he's not backward in coming forward, is he? He will tackle head on, he'll tackle conflict and tension and, and issues and sin and disagreements and he tackles these things head on so much so that he can come across as kind of harsh, kind of across as, uh, as dogmatic or unloving even. But it's because he loves his friends and knows the joy and the peace that results from genuine gospel community. That is why he confronts and he challenges when there's a need. Um, there's, there's basically three parts to what we, the, the reading we read today. Um, I'm going to focus on most, most of the first section, or, or two, two or three verses, um, and then make a bit of a comment about the, the, the latter parts. Um, but first of all is this, this appeal. This is kind of where we'll hang out a bit today. I plead with, I don't know how to say their names, Euodia, and I plead with, let's say, Syntyche. Is that how you said it? Um, 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 Francis, I'm not sure. Yodia and, and Syntyche. You okay, Abby? No. <laughs> to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now think for a minute about how bold this is. There's two ladies in the congregation who are in some kind of a conflict. There's there's a disagreement. They're not of the same mind on something. It might be really mild. It might just be a little disagreement. It might be far more serious. We don't know exactly what what the, the issue is. But Paul thinks that conflict, this conflict and disagreement among members is serious enough to do a few things. To publicly name them in, in an appeal to be of one mind and work out their differences and then to ask another person, this true companion, that might be Timothy, it might be Epaphroditus who have been mentioned in the letter, um, it's someone who's obvious to them just not to us, um, someone he calls my true companion and he calls on that person to help these ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, be of one mind. Now this is a letter written to the whole Philippian church to be read publicly to them. Can you imagine how confronting that would be? Let's say I stood up here one morning and I said, morning everyone, morning Billabong, so glad to be with you. I've I've just been thanking God for you this week. I mean, it's so wonderful to hear the stories of what God's doing in your lives and and how God's at work in our church. I I am so grateful. I love you, my, my church family. That said, Sarah and Dinah, can I plead with you to work out your differences and be of one mind? Amen. And my friend out there, you know who you are, please help them do this. Okay, let's move on to a time of worship. (laughs) Now, it would be a bit confronting, right? First of all, for Sarah and for Dinah. Secondly, for the person, the unnamed person who knows who they are, who are, who's meant to try to help with the reconciliation, because now the rest of you are watching. Then there's those who will be going, oh boy, well, you know, what's going on with Sarah and Dinah? I mean, what have we missed? 
because you don't know. And then some people are going to take sides. Well, hang on, I know what Sarah did. It's not Dinah's fault. You know? uh, like th- this would be the, the reality, I presume. So I guess the question is, is Paul being irresponsible by publicly naming them like this? Or does Paul know that this community of faith is, is tight enough and bonded in love enough that they understand how their lives are in each other's hands as a church under persecution and, and, and deeply committed in partnership in the gospel to one another? Does he understand this and know that they can handle some challenge and will hear this confrontation as loving and in their best interests? I, I believe Paul has instilled in them, as he did with many of the churches, the importance of unity and that this is a reminder not to let one thing, one relationship, sort of slip away because eh, it's not that big a deal. So having read this and going, okay, if that's what's going on here, what, what about us? Do we, the Billabong, have that kind of, of unity and, and, and bond of love together? Do we hold being of one mind as something so important that we, as Paul says in Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, to, to keep this, to restore this unity if it goes awry a bit. So much so that even a single dispute among two believers, men, women, whoever, is serious enough to say, you know, we're going to name this and we're going to commit to help you deal with it. I'd love to say... We, have, we do have that kind of unity and that bond and that commitment to it. I don't think it's quite the case. Now, I'm, I'm so encouraged by the possibilities, the opportunities ahead for our church. I, I, I do see God at work among us, uh, in people's lives, in who he's drawing to himself through the relationships you all have with people who... Who, who are on a journey towards Jesus in our prayer culture in so many ways. But I also think that our f- church family is at a kind of a crossroads because in some areas we are not all of, as Paul would say, the same mind. Now, admittedly, no church is. <laughs> That's not, there's, there's no such thing as perfection in this. Um, it's an ideal, it's a goal, and some churches are closer than others, but sh- obviously none are perfect. But in terms of where we're at, well, there's genuine, many genuine reasons as to why this is not an easy challenge. Our leadership team's led in a, a new and uncomfortable and challenging direction to pursue a, to the starting of a new church, a church plant, and that has involved significant investment of people and time and financial resources in a scarily unstable season in our world. Uh, We've shifted and reset our priorities over recent years and our focus areas. We've grown, then we've shrunk, and we've navigated COVID. We've had several staff changes over over recent years. We've had a host of facilities-related issues that are not always that visible, but often are draining on some. And we've had and continue to have changes to how we do things on Sunday. Some, some are encouraged by that. Others, it's less comfortable. We've, for example, the, the room changed today. That's a lot. 
Uh, and and I, I recognize that. I also recognize my own part in that. And it's true that it's impossible to be completely of one mind at this kind of time in our church's life in comparison to you know, any other time in particular. But having this goal, as Paul puts it in Corinthians, to, to be perfectly united in mind and thought or, and to keep the unity of the spirit, as he puts it in Ephesians, not just by setting aside the other important stuff, but in the midst of the uncomfortable and challenging journey into the harvest field, to take up the call of the mission of God, to go and make disciples who make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach others to do the same. That difficult and challenging work of going into the world and sharing the gospel, that in the midst of that, being perfectly united, keeping the unity of the Spirit, making every effort, must still be our goal. And I've been asking myself this question, what's my part? What's my role in that? Not necessarily as, just as pastor, um, but, but just as a brother in Christ, right? As a, as a member of this spiritual family. Am I making every effort, as Ephesians puts it, to pray with those and pray for and talk with those I'm not of one mind with. If I see conflict in others, between others, am I avoiding that, going, oh, I'll let them work that out? Or trying to be like that true companion Paul talks about, um, like a third party trying to be a peacemaker for the benefit of the whole? Is there anything in my views and priorities that's born out of, as Paul puts it in chapter 2, selfish ambition or vain conceit? Is there anything that's actually not that I've sought the Lord, it's that I'm, I'm, I'm being selfish in that and I need to listen and change my opinion? Healthy churches are full of people asking the question, what do you want of me, God? How do I need to change? How do I need to make an effort or, or, or listen or serve? Struggling, dying churches are full of people who assume it's always someone else's problem. And so we, we want to be a church who says, well, God, what do you want of me? In serving and giving myself to the body. That's why I've been so encouraged in the last uh, about 10 months since sort of February by the people who've sharpened and stirred and at times changed my own thinking about this church planting venture. When I began, when it began, uh, the conversations at a leadership team level uh, first, having thought about it for a number, a couple, like a year or so, but then going, okay, we're really going to talk about this. When that began, I had ideas and perspectives, some of which I was a bit stubborn about. But in the last 10 months, it, this for me has been a rich learning experience. It's helped me smash some of my idols and challenge my lack of trust in God. And I know next year, as the plans progress, that it'll be the same. There's like ideas I have, and like, well, actually, no, I need to rethink that. And so I want to plead with you this morning, as Paul pleaded with his friends. If you're not of the same mind with brothers and sisters in Christ around you over any issue, whatever it might be, make space to listen to them, make space to talk with them. For example, if you're all for the church plant, 
seek out those who aren't and try to understand why. If you're against it, talk to those who are for it. If you're in between, same thing. If you see division and disagreement with, between others, whatever the issue is, maybe you could lovingly approach them about that and say, hey, I know you, I know them, I know Sarah, I know Dinah, I know Francis, you know, I know Gail. Hey, is there some way I can, I can help to come to that same, for the two of you to come to that same mind? The reason we can do this is because if under the surface uh, the foundation is the, our love of God and God's love for us, then we are on the same team. And being of one mind is not only possible, it's necessary for God's kingdom to come. Um, Paul, Paul says this to the unnamed true companion he refers to. Help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. He says, basically, these women are not sort of these, these difficult outliers on the fringe who just always cause problems. These are, these are ladies who have been with us and with me in the mission of God, passionately contending at my side. Strong language. We're in this together. That's proven. He's basically saying, look at the history we have here. And that's true of the billabong. There's so much... Um, uh, passion and sacrifice and effort over so many years, these relationships that we have are worth fighting for. If we're not on the same page, it's, it's worth because we've contended at each other's side in the cause of the gospel. It's worth trying to work things out if we divert from each other a bit. I've not always done that well. But my commitment to you, my, my promise to you, is that I will try to do what Paul says in Ephesians. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And to try not to assume that I know the depths of your heart and you know how I think and I know what makes you tick, but to listen and reflect and consider as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's true that to be of the same mind is, is a massive challenge. It's not like we just sort of have a coffee and we work it out sometimes. But the key to being of the same mind, to being of one mind, is in the rest of the phrase used in Philippians 4. Of the same mind in the Lord. I reckon 99% of the times that I've not been united with brothers and sisters in Christ on something is because I've not approached the issue having sought the Lord genuinely. We as human beings are going to disagree, and I'm talking now about broadly humanity. Humanity is going to disagree with, with each other on just about everything there is to disagree on. And, and I'm, what I'm about to say is not to discount the fact that we need a flourishing society where human beings can agree to disagree. We need that. We, we will disagree, and we need to agree to disagree with gentleness and respect and humility. That's a no-brainer in the world. But in the church... If we are to have the mind of Christ, to be of the same mind in the Lord, then we, we cannot be in conflict with one another. And in fact, if the only way we can be in conflict with one another is when our mind is not aligned with his. Now, 
hear me out here because you may think this is a bit of a simplistic uh, approach to this matter. But I, but I want to make this point. The Holy Spirit does not contradict himself, giving one Christian one conviction and another Christian another conviction that is completely at odds and then step back going, oh, this should be fun. That, that's not what the Holy Spirit does. That's not who he is. That's not who the Father is. That's not who Jesus is. And so our goal is to simply submit ourselves continually to God with the prayer, your will be done. Jesus, help me understand your will, your way, your mind, Lord Jesus. The scriptures do not contradict themselves. The Holy Spirit does not contradict themselves when he speaks to us through the scriptures. It's the foundation of Christian theology. And so we seek the mind of Christ to be of the same mind, not just because we tried to get along, but the same mind in the Lord. In the next passage, sorry, the next part of the passage, uh, I think Paul speaks to this. He speaks some words that many of you will be familiar with. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything, but with prayer and petition, pray about everything, then the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, trustworthy, honourable, Think on, dwell on these things. I won't spend too long on this, but there's, there's really a common, one common theme here. Focus on God and his work. As I said before, turn your eyes upon Jesus. It's the, the, if it's frustration you're dealing with, if it's worry, if it's pain, if it's desires of the flesh, if it's conflict... Set your mind on Jesus. Rejoice in God. Pray to God. Think about the things of God. Focus on God. This is not some self-help, think positive strategy for happiness. Oh, if we just think positive, then it'll all be better. Paul is getting at here the fundamental truth of human existence. And that is that when we align our heart and mind with God our relationships with each other flourish. We get the vertical right, the horizontal gets taken care of. And Christianity is not a faith based on feelings. Like when we feel like rejoicing, we rejoice. And when we feel like despairing, we despair. That's not what the scriptures say. Rejoice in the Lord when? Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Not because we always feel like rejoicing. But because God's wonderful, saving, redeeming work is always true, despite the fact that lots of other things that make us not feel like rejoicing are also true. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, think about these things when you experience them. No, it doesn't say that. Think about these things. Dwell on these things. Not because they are the only things you and I experience. Wouldn't that be nice? But think on them anyway. Because it is true that God's work is present in these things, in these experiences. And so it's an important question for us to ask. How's our attitude? What is our focus on? What do we focus on day to day, week to week? I really love those of you who are glass half full people. That's the positive ones, right? 
Yep. <laughs> I always get those confused. I'm like, if it's half empty, that's still, anyway. Um, glass half, because you're so positive and uplifting and you help people like me stop focusing on the negatives and going in a downward spiral. I love those of you who are glass half empty people too. I just can't be around you quite as much because we will spiral each other down into depression. And if our focus is on Jesus, the things of this world, all the issues and disputes and struggles, they do grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Uh, There's one final verse in this passage, so we covered sort of two sections. There's one final verse. It's really easy to skip over quickly um, and not think much of it. But this one verse I I think is so key in this letter. It actually provides a picture of what our faith and our discipleship to Jesus is, is really all about when it boils down to it. I think this is for Paul a kind of final statement about what it all boils down to before he he finishes in the passage we didn't read after it with some personal closing comments and a final greeting. What Paul says in this verse 9 is, whatever you have learned or received or heard from or seen in me, put it into practice and the peace of God will be with you. I believe this alludes to Jesus' final words in Matthew's Gospel, the Great Commissioner. If, it's, if he's not directly alluding to it, it's that Paul has so embraced it that it just comes out of him with different language. Go and make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach the others to do the same, and I will be with you, peace of God will be with you, to the end of the age. This verse is indeed Paul's understanding of what it is to make disciples who make disciples. He says this, whatever you've learned from me, received from me, heard from me, seen in me. And each of those, Greek, those words in the Greek obviously have a slightly different meaning. But essentially that when you put the four of them together, it's a mix of two things. What Paul has taught them with his words and his teachings and shown them with his life. It's his teaching and his example that they would learn the information is passed on and they would have something to imitate. And then he says, put this into practice in your life. Being disciples of Jesus is about learning and growing and developing through both the teaching of God's word and the example of the lives of other believers. And then putting that into practice. The most obvious thing that this means is that Sunday morning forms a very small part of our Christian walk. It's an important part for sure, but we don't see, really see the lives of our mentors, our Pauls, the people who are discipling us and who we're learning from in church on a Sunday morning. Maybe we see it a little more in life groups, but what's really needed and what he's really calling us to is to do life together, to rub shoulders more than a couple of times per month. And this goes so much against our Western, comfortable, individualistic, busy, busy lives. And so it challenges us to make changes. But this is the life that we're meant to live. This is the life we're meant for, not to go to church, but to be a family and all that that means. And so as we close today, I encourage you to, to consider what's your part in that 
What's God calling you to maybe let go of so that you can take up the opportunity for this partnership in the gospel with your brothers and sisters in Christ? If you feel like you have something to lose in that, a sacrifice to make, is it possible that what you'll gain is far greater and will bring you great joy? Father, I want to ask that as we head now into a season of Advent, looking forward to the incarnation and the miracle and the amazing thing that that is and what it means for our life in relationship with you, that we would head into this busy and sometimes stressful season of Advent. With that reminder on our hearts and minds that we are called to hold each other's lives in our hands to lay down our lives for one another and to do what is necessary to seek to be of the same mind in the Lord. Lord, may we keep our focus on you that our relationships with each other would flourish more and more in the body of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.